This is our obviously our last night of retreat, and so tomorrow we're going to um, go back out there to the so-called real world. Um, from my view of things, this world seems a lot realer than the one out there, but it is a different world with uh, emails and tweets and chatter and complex relationships and... Um, rising sea levels and news cycles and all the rest of it. So what I would like for us to do tonight is uh, spend some time just exploring, taking in here, out there. Um, Integrating what we've learned, what we've discovered in itself, what we've seen uh, with the stuff and things and people out there. I have no pat answer on how to do this. But I have found that there are some questions that are really helpful uh, for me and sometimes for other people to help uh, work through this. So uh, in a little while, I'm going to invite you uh, to sit with a partner. And, um, and this is not going to be a discussion, but you'll have a partner and then you'll have uh, a period of time to... Uh, just talk about these questions to a heartful listener, and you'll also have you know, switch rules and have a chance to listen to a heartful speaker. Uh, I find that uh, actually talking about these questions with someone else is one way of helping to integrate it a little bit. So the four questions are, um, how does life rub you the wrong way? Okay. Number two is, how do you relate to difficulty? I, I have these all printed out That's a, on little cards. Um, number two. No, that's okay. I'll, I'll just tell you now. And we'll pass them out when you're ready. Or would you just like to look at them? I don't care. Somebody tell me what I'm doing. Uh, how does life rub you the wrong way? How do you relate to difficulty? Uh, where do you find contentment? And what helps? And these four questions come right out of the core of Buddhism, right out of the dead center out of it. Uh, most uh, scholars and teachers agree that uh, the, the real cornerstone of Buddhism uh, is the four ennobling truths, um, also known as the four noble truths. The so-called truths were not... the um, we're not intended to be um, what we usually think of as spiritual or religious truths. They're not statements about metaphysical reality or ultimate truth or something like that. They are actually quite mundane observations uh, about just how life really is. And so the, the noble or the ennobling part is the Buddha gave a practice that goes with each of these. Uh, basically, he was saying, if you engage these observations, if you engage these truths skillfully and wisely, it will help ennoble you. And nobility has gets mixed reviews in the 21st century, but back in his day, ennobling really meant, um, um, you know, becoming wiser, becoming clearer, becoming uh, freer. So I thought musing on these questions that come right out of that would be uh, helpful. 
for a transition out of here. But before we go into the questions themselves, uh, I thought it might be fun to tell you a little bit of the story behind these. We all need a good story on the last night. So, um, as you know, perhaps, but um, that what, what happened is that uh, Siddhartha Gautama uh, went out on this spiritual quest. He was in his late 20s, and uh, it was a long story about how all that came together, uh, but basically went out and he trained uh, for six and a half years, uh, first with some of the uh, best known and uh, best teachers that were around, Alara Kalama and Ramaputta, and uh, learned what they had to offer and it wasn't enough. And he ended up off um, meditating by himself along with uh, five meditation buddies. Uh, none of them were playing teacher. They were just meditating together to support each other. And, uh, and he got clear and clear about what he needed to do and almost killed himself in the process, by the way. These were very harsh, severe, ascetic practices. Um, and he got clear on uh, what needed to be done. And he went out and found a nice place to meditate in this fig grove next to this river and sat down. And um, over the course of a quite colorful evening of meditation, uh, woke up became a fully enlightened Buddha. And, uh, he, and what he realized in that was so simple, really, yet so nuanced, that he really wasn't sure anybody could understand uh, what, he, what, what, what he had seen. And so he hung out around the, uh, around the fig tree there, the pila tree, uh, for a month just kind of soaking in all that he had, uh, had learned and seen the ramifications of it. And gradually it occurred to him, I gradually began to see that uh, there were a lot of people who he probably could not be any help for, but there were a few people who were like close enough, had seen enough, that what he knew might help you know, push them over, might, might help them wake up fully. So he decided to teach, and the first people he thought to teach were his old teachers, Alara Kalama and Ramaputta. But uh, unfortunately, by that point, they were dead. So that wasn't going to work very well. And then, uh, so he thought he would go to his five meditation buddies. So he uh, set out uh, to find them. And as he left the Pila Grove and was walking down the trail, the, the first person who, who he passed there was this young ascetic by the name of uh, Upeka. And so Upeka is walking up the road, and here comes this guy. And you can imagine this uh, serene countenance, uh, kind of glowing sense about him. And Upeka could see something you know, happened to this guy. And so Upeka goes up and says, uh, you know, what happened to you? Who are you? And he asks, and who is your teacher? You know, so wherever he got it, he wouldn't know who his teacher was, so he could go get it too. And so uh, the Buddha responded to Apeka, and this was his first attempt to teach anyone what the Dharma was really all about. And what he said, uh, a, a version of it is recorded in the Majjhima and it goes something like this. So Upeka says, 
you know, who are you? Who is your teacher? And um, the freshly awakened Buddha says, I am one who has transcended all, a knower of all, unsullied among all things, renouncing all by cravings, uh, ceasing freed. I have no teacher, uh, and one like me exists nowhere in the world with all its gods because I have no person for my counterpart. So just imagine you're in Rama, uh, that you are in uh, Upaka's position. You're walking through a park somewhere. There is this guy that seems really clear and open, and you say, you know, I just want to talk to you and, you know, and, and see what you're about. And uh, the Buddha was actually talking in verse at this point. So, you're, so you ask this guy what it's all about, and he starts rapping with you in cadence. I am the accomplished one in the world. I am the teacher supreme. I alone am a fully enlightened one whose fires uh, are quenched and extinguished. What would you think? <laughs> you know, is this guy on drugs? You know, what's going on here? So in uh, Majin Magaya, Upaka's response is, re- uh, is recorded. Uh, when this was said, the ascetic Upaka said, May it be so, friend. <laughs> Shaking his head, he took a bypath and departed. So I, I always think I can picture you know, the, the Buddha here. His first teaching, you know, and as he walks, Upaka scooting off down the path, you know, he's looking, you know, Buddha's looking at this guy's back receding and think, hmm, this didn't go very well. <laughs> the mistake that the Buddha made was uh, he wasn't pay- he was paying attention to what he knew what he had found but he wasn't paying attention to who he was talking to uh, so he was just like talking right past him so when you go out of here uh, and you you know if you feel some enthusiasm is something for you know what you found just remember that your your people your family the people out there you know you've been away for eight days well they had eight days too. And they may have been a little bit different than yours. And as this uh, very dear friend of mine who does a lot of uh, training for big corporate types and stuff uh, loves to say uh, about, uh, about speech, uh, she says, you have two eyes and one mouth, I mean two ears and one mouth, use both of them and in those proportions. <laughs> so why speech is really two parts listening and one part Speaking. So, um, the Buddha was a very, very smart guy. I mean, he was, he was brilliant. I mean, just, I think, apart from his uh, accomplishment. And you can just see it in the, uh, in the flexibility of his teachings. And so he got it. And so when he uh, found these five ascetics in this little village outside of Varanasi, uh, Sarnath. They were staying in this uh, wildlife refuge there. Um, he approached them a little differently. And he was paying attention to who they were. And he spoke uh, directly to them in their language. And you'll find it throughout the suttas when the Buddha is saying, when you're talking to other people, he says, talk in their vernacular. Don't talk in your own language. Talk to them in their own terms. So this uh, particular talk is uh, known as the Dhammakakapa Vatana Sutta. That will be on the quiz tomorrow. 
Dhammakakapa of Vatada Sutta. What it means is setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. And in the, my book that's coming out, I have, a, I have all this in a chapter. It was fun to write about. Um, and it's really where Buddhism came into the world for the first time. I was going to read you parts of, um, of the sutta as it's recorded on the Majjhima but um, I began to realize you know, the language gets so thick that I think it might be better for me to just tell you the contents of it. I think I can do it smoother that way. And if you're really interested in unpacking this, let me know. I could talk about it with you. There's also a, an article on my website called Turning Towards, which I do a full kind of exegesis a full unpacking of the whole sutta and all, all that stuff. So if you're curious about that, but if you don't have the same kind of nerd genes I do, um, don't bother. So uh, the first thing he does in this talk is he introduces the, the, um, this idea of the middle way. So these ascetics were deeply into um, basically pushing the world away. And so uh, he starts talking about him. He says, you know, it's best not to really indulge the world, that it can pull you off balance and everything else. So, so I, you can see him listening and says, yeah, 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 we got that one, we got that. So he's got him hooked in. And then he says, and uh, you also don't want to push the world away, uh, which was probably a little confusing to them. And that actually brought in this, this uh, first talk about the middle way of neither... Um, of neither renouncing the world nor indulging it. And then after that, he goes into talking about the Four Noble Truths that really become the foundation. And they are usually, since they're called Four Noble Truths, it, they, it sounds like, as I said earlier, they are talking, that he's talking about um, kind of telling people how it is. But they're actually practices. And each of these observations has a practice that's associated with it. So the first truth is, what's the first truth? Suffering. suffering. There is there is suffering. There is suffering in the world, and uh, and the practice that's associated with that uh, is is to understand. It said suffering is to be understood, and this is not an intellectual understanding. If uh, if you feel understood by a friend or if you really understand a friend, what that means, it's not only that you can analyze them, but that you have an intuitive feel for them. You know how they tick, what, what inspires them, what frightens them, what motivates them, you know, what they're really all about. And so the Buddha is saying that um, the, the first practice, if you really want to get free, is you really have to intimately understand how suffering works. And so the first thing you have to do for that, at the very least, is actually turn towards truth, turn towards uh, the suffering, the, uh, the difficulty, whatever life has brought along, and open up and see it. So uh, I translate that into my own modern vernacular as the first practice is turning towards, just turning towards whatever life brings towards you. The second ennobling truth. Oh, come on. Some of you know. Pardon? Yes, and the causes are? Craving. Craving, yes. Tanha, tension. Yeah, yeah. 
So if, uh, if you really get to understand suffering and how it's worked, what you begin to see is that it has its roots, it has its origins in this deep instinctual tightening called tana, which is usually translated as craving. Um, and the practice that he gives for, uh, for tanha uh, is a very dramatic word. And I've looked through lots and lots of different scholars' translations of all this, and they all use the same one for this one, and the word is abandon. So that uh, the craving, the tanha, the tension is to be abandoned. And I don't think that abandon has the implications of leaving the baby on the doorsteps of the church. It, it's, it's really just a walk away from it. So how do you abandon tension? Yeah, you relax. You relax. The core of the six R's is, is, is the relax. So turning towards, relax, and it's not relax to get away from them. So my own modern vernacular is first is turning towards, the second is relaxing into, right? So you're not trying to pull away from it. And as you relax the tension, what happens is it recedes sooner or later, maybe not immediately. And... Um, so that leads, brings us to the third ennobling truth, which is? Sedition of craving leads to sedition of suffering. Yes, yeah. So uh, is this observation that as you... I mean, this is not rocket science. It's like if you sit here, well, you can try this, or tighten up a little bit, and then relax. What feels better? You know, that's that's what he's saying, is that, you know, relaxing um, feels better uh, on a really deep level. And so the practice that's associated with this is, uh, I think, really interesting. Uh, the, the practice is usually translated in the text as realize. And what I think, if you go through the translations, what it's really talking about is just really make it real. You know, so when there are those moments of peace, when there are those, uh, you know, the the, uh, the well-being, you know, the ease or the sense of joy or that, to really take it in. And so I use this the simple thing of savor. You know, um, and as we've talked about here before, part of it is the brain is so much more sensitive to negatives and positives, and so with all the Buddha's emphasis on understanding. Suffering and uh, and, and abandoning the, uh, the tension. After all that, it's really important just to savor it and take it in. And then the fourth ennobling truth. Basically, it's, it's not a it's not a truth at all. It's uh, it's called the eightfold path. Uh, and my take on it, and I've run it past a couple of teachers, uh, and they say, "Oh yeah, absolutely." is that uh, it's not so much a path as it is a kind of a checklist that's saying if you do these first three practices, if you turn towards, relax into, and savor, and, uh, and it still is, you know, after a while, it's still not working, here are eight things you, that you can look at that might help you bring it into balance. Okay. And so the eight are... Um, 
uh, wise you, wise intentions, uh, skillful speech, harmonious speech, skillful speech, um, skillful action, wise livelihood, how you take care of yourself in the, in the world is something that's done uh, with consciousness. Uh, wise effort, it's the six R's, wise effort, wise awareness, um, a wise mindfulness, I like to use the word awareness better, and wise samadhi, wise uh, peacefulness. So those are just eight areas you can look at to see where you are in those. Okay. So after he had um, laid these out... That's right. Okay, so uh, what happens uh, in there in the actual text is these are repeated three times, and that happens a lot in oral tradition, so they're repeated um, because people are listening, they're not taking notes, you know. And so uh, the way each one is said is so like um, there is suffering, and then he says, so that's the first repetition. The second one says, suffering is to be understood. And the third one says, and suffering has been understood by me. And what the subtext there is that if you like what you see in me, that I have understood this, and that's part of what woke me up, and you can do it too. So that's what, that's what the three repetitions are. So... Um, I'll just read the the ending of that this little sutta. Um, he says, "As long as my knowing and seeing of uh, how things are was not thoroughly purified by these four ennobling truths, I did not claim unsurpassed full awakening. I knew that I was not fully awakened. But as soon as my knowing and seeing of how things are was quite purified, then I claimed surpassed full awakening." Knowing and seeing arose in me thus. My heart's deliverance is unshakable. This is my last birth. That meaning is fully enlightened. Now there is no renewal of, of being. That is what the Blessed One said. Gratified, the group of five monks delighted in his words. And while the discourse was being given, there arose in the venerable um, Kundanya, who was one of these five ascetics, there rose in the venerable Kandanya the dust-free, stainless vision of the Dhamma. Quote, whatever is subject to origination is subject to cessation. The Blessed One exclaimed, Kandanya knows, Kandanya knows. And that is how the Venerable One acquired the name Ananya Kandanya, one who knows. The wheel of truth has thus been set rolling by the Blessed One. And we can be very grateful to Kandanya and uh, what happened is uh, another one of the, the aesthetics got it uh, fairly quickly. The other ones had to practice for a few days, and they woke up. And I think if they hadn't, the Buddha would have probably gone back to the fig grove and, uh, and lived out his life quietly and disappeared from history. <laughs> um, but the fact that this work kind of kept it around and got it going. So... So, uh, the way you describe the eight-fold path of the checklist, it actually changes 
how we use the practice because the main practice being the first three. That's right. And the last one is more kind of tuning and adjustments. Yes. So, which is great because it's, I mean, it, was, it wasn't told like this earlier. Stephen Batchelor has a slightly different take on it, which I think is is uh, is useful. That um, you understand uh, you understand suffering, you release um, uh, the craving, you release the tanha, and then there is this blissful, wonderful stuff that comes up, and then it subsides, and you think, how can I keep this going? You know, it keeps going away from me. And so what he's saying is, is that there's this base practice and there are these other things that you can do that help uh, the practice deepen and, uh, and be more sustaining. But, but I do see, and if you look through all the Buddha's practices, these, these first three, turning towards, relaxing into, and savoring, are the common elements uh, that go throughout them. Okay. So, are you going to go into the eightfold path items separately? If not, I have a question on a specific one. No, I wasn't, I wasn't going to. So, uh, the wise thought, or what Bhante puts as harmonious imaging, what is that all about? So, Samaditi, uh, wise view, uh, how you see what's going on uh, has a strong effect on your attitude and motivation. Um, and that has... Uh, how you come to the practice, you know what it is you're trying to accomplish. Uh, that that's what um, uh, samasankapa is the, which is translated as uh, wise attitude, wise thought is the traditional one. Bhante uses wise imaging, but it really, um, for me, the clearest one is wise attitude. So you can see the attitude that you bring to the practice can have a dramatic effect on the outcome. So if you're coming at it with, um, you know, a difficult attitude, then it's 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 not going to work as well. So is it specifically for the practice, or also for the day-to-day life? It's all of it. It's all of it. It's all of it. Yeah. He's, he's wondering about attitude and, and intention. Um, I use attitude because I think it's, uh, it, it's a little clearer for me. And intention implies a little bit, you know, can be, you know, I want to get somewhere. It has that as opposed to attitude is just how you view it. And I think that's what's there. So, um, what I have done with this is, uh, we could say, uh, you know, how much, uh, how well do you understand suffering? Uh, do you abandon it? Um, do you uh, realize cessation? I don't think that's terribly useful. So, what I wanted to do was to frame some questions that actually approach these, because what's most important is not. Um, uh, so much of whether you see suffering, but actually look at how suffering appears in your life. You know, we're trying to personalize this. And uh, I had some fun uh, coming up with uh, life uh, rubs you the wrong way because the word dukkha, 
which is the word that the Buddha used for suffering. The origin of the term, a dukkha, what it literally means is uh, it refers to the axle, I mean to the hole in the center of a wheel into which the axle goes. And if the, if the hole is a little off-center or has some sand or gravel on it, uh, then it kind of presses and grinds as it turns. And that was, that was, so that off-center hole is called a dukkha. So there's this sense of what he was really talking about with suffering is ways that life kind of presses and grinds and kind of wears on us. Um, and so I just translated that into how does life rub you the wrong way. And uh, the second one is uh, he talks about uh, abandoning uh, the tension. And rather than just making that a declaration, I think what's most helpful is to just look at what your some habitual ways are of dealing with tension and difficulty in your life to see what some of your habit patterns are. You know enough about this practice that you know what the correct answer, so to speak, is. And then what really is helpful is to kind of bring it into home is just look how you relate to difficulty and just be really clear and honest and open with yourself. And the third uh, truth about savoring, uh, so the question there is like, where do you find contentment? Uh, you know, where are, are the places that you find that peace or pleasure or something in your life? Because actually once you can recognize where that is, then the savoring becomes a little easier. And then rather than going through the whole checklist, you know, the fourth one, I'm just saying, what helps? You know, what, you know, what really helps, what supports you in... Personally in our own life. Personally in your own life. Yeah, these are all personal questions. These are all about you. This is about taking this into your life here and your life out there, how you relate to this. Okay, are those clear? The where is like a location. The where is not a location. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so... Um, <laughs> I missed that. Maybe I was supposed to. Uh, so what I'm going to ask you to do is to find a partner, uh, and and what you will be doing is as we'll be ti- I'll be keeping track of the time, and uh, you'll have uh, like two or three minutes, um, probably more like four or five. We'll we'll I'll sort of feel it out. And uh, the, your first task uh, when you have a partner is to decide who's going to speak first and who's going to listen. That's the hard part. Uh, and then when it's your turn to talk, what you will do is you will have these questions in front of you. Uh, and you can use these any way you want. You can go through them systematically looking at each one, or there may be one that really grabs you at the moment. And you can still look at that, you know, and talk about that for a while. I don't want to give you a prescribed way of being with these, but you can just use them as cues to uh, keep on bringing you back to uh, these core teachings of the Buddha. Okay, so can we get into pairs and and see if we have an even or odd number of people? Okay, so uh, so we're going to have one group of three. (laughs) 
Okay, so, so what's going to happen, uh, since we have one group of three, is we're going to have, um, let's have this. We're going to have three rounds. Okay, so what's going to happen is the person who speaks first, uh, will be talking while the other person listens. And then I will ring a gong and let you know, and you will switch roles. And then you will go back and we'll do that three times. Except for these guys. Uh, so you'll be going around and each of you, rather than um, speaking and listening three times, you will, as you're speaking, you will be listened to by two people at the same time. So you, you guys will end up with two rounds. Okay? No. <laughs> and, and by the way, let me just say one other thing. One other, one other thing. I'm sorry. I know you're so excited to get there. Is I really want you to encourage you when you were listening to just listen. Um, we all know good, good listening. You're supposed to be nodding and agreeing and setting off all these, these cues. Um, for those of you who don't know the story, when I was uh, in college, um, um, earning a degree in psychology, there was a friend of mine who was um, studying operant conditioning, you know, how you use rewards to train rats to go through mazes and stuff. And so he undertook this experiment with his roommate, which was every time his roommate moved his hand towards his ear, he would smile. Not a big smile, just a, just a, just a very subtle one. And within about three or four days, his roommate had developed this habit of pulling on his ear. So when you do all that, that smiling and nodding, etc., what you're actually doing is you're actually guiding uh, your partner and encouraging them to talk more about this or less than that. That may not be your intention. What you're really trying to do them is reassure them that you're really listening. They will feel it. They will know whether you're listening or not. So what I want you to do is just be a presence for them. And when you're speaking, it can get a little disoriented because usually no response is a negative in our culture. <laughs> but you'll know it's not a negative. It was just instructions I gave you. And then um, what I used to do is I'd start telling jokes, anything to get a rise from them. But eventually what happens is you realize you're not going to get anything from them, so there's nothing left to do but pay attention to what's going on inside and speak from that place. And that can be enormously supportive. Okay. Question. So these questions that we're discussing with our partner is how we're going to apply the Dhamma to our lives? No, you just... Have um, how, how, how you have. How, okay. how you have. Okay. Um, we all have great intentions, but I think what's really most valuable is to know what has been, because it's the awareness of that that creates the greatest possibility for change. Okay? Right, right. So, so we'll, go, we'll go back back and forth several times. And, and, and what happens is that at some point, it may feel like you run out of things to say, and if so, just you know, kind of drop into silence and just be with it. And usually what happens is after a few moments, you know, something else will come up. And meanwhile, you're just waiting. And so it allows it to go a little bit deeper. So if you run out of things to say, don't treat it as a failure. Um, There's this process called meditation. Some of you may have heard of it. You can just sit there and be with it for a moment and and see what comes forth. Okay. What is the three times thing? (laughs) (laughs) 
So what happens is you will... To who's speaking first? Have you figured that out? Yeah. Okay. So, so you will speak, and then you'll listen, and, and, and then you'll speak and listen and speak and listen. Okay, so you get three chances to speak and three chances to listen. Okay. Oh, half an hour each round. No. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, well, we picked out a really wonderful partner for you. I have you met Lana? Yes. <laughs> so. Um, um, it'll, it'll, it'll be it'll be two or three minutes. But you're actually not going to know how much time it is. You won't really know. I'll, I will keep track of it. You will be safe. I will make sure you leave here on time tomorrow. <laughs> okay, any other questions about logistics? We got it. If, if you get confused and you're not sure, just raise your hand. Uh, it actually works quite simply. So... You, Yes. So if you're confused, raise your hand. I will make sure you do it right. <laughs> Samavaka, right speech. So the first speaker begins. You're speaking first. Yeah. Until so, the gong. Until the gong. Oh, okay. Should, am I doing one question at a time or all these questions? However you like. Okay. You can use them any way you like. But remember, we have three days. Yeah. All right. Well, one might just be in this is a chance to practice this thing that you'll be doing out there. It's called speaking. It's, I know it's foreign, but it's a good thing to practice. So come in into silence. Uh, the, the listeners say thank you, and then just come into silence for just a moment as you switch roles. And then as you are ready, the next uh, person begins to speak. So come into silence. Those who are listening say thank you. It's a gift to have somebody share. And then close your eyes for just a moment and shift rules. And then open your eyes and the new speaker um, begins working with these questions in whatever way feels most productive for you. So the listeners say thank you, and then just close your eyes for a moment and shift roles. 
then as as you're ready, the new speaker opens her eyes and um, begins to work with the questions. Listeners, say thank you. And then close your eyes for just a moment. Let yourself shift roles. Then when you are ready, you can open your eyes and begin to work with the questions. Again, you can move through them systematically. You can spend the whole time on one. You can work with them any way that feels intuitively helpful for you. Coming into silence. Listeners say thank you and come into silence. And silently shift roles inside. You'd be a listener to just be a presence there for your, your partner. And then when you're ready, open your eyes and the new speaker begins. Come into silence and the listener says thank you. In the dyads, each of you has spoken and listened three times. Okay. We're going to have one more round. And the last round, uh, it will be chaos. You can listen and talk. All rules are off. Um, you can ask questions. You can nod. Um, Use it in a way that feels most productive for you. (laughs) Begin. Begin. 